Welcome everyone, this is Carlos Esmeral from SeedCamp. Today we're going to be talking about artificial intelligence. I think it's a topic that everyone is really interested in these days. It's kind of on point. Um, one of the things that people always ask is kind of, are robots going to take over? And we're going to uh, cover topics such as those, but also a little bit more in detail, other areas and technical areas of AI and the current state of it. And with me, I have two guests. Uh, one's a SeedCamp company, Ed Chalice, founder of SeedCamp company Reinfer. And also have Christoph, and I always butcher his last name, so I'm going to leave it at Christoph. And he's the Partner Innovations Lead for IBM Watson Europe. Um, thank you guys for joining me. Thank you. Thank uh, you. Let's maybe start with, with you, Christoph. Can you, A, give me the correct pronunciation of your last name, and B, maybe walk me through a little bit about what you were doing before very quickly, and then sort of what you're doing within IBM Watson. Sure. So... My last name is Awo Welsbach. Uh, it's very German. I'm Austrian originally, right? So um, my background is I've um, founded two fintech companies around 2011 and 12, and um, one is still running, um, one we shut down. And after that, I um, built and ran startup accelerators, tech ecosystems, and early stage VC programs in the US, in the UK, and in the Netherlands. Um, my first touch point with, let's say, machine learning in that sense was 2013 in uh, a company that we invested through an accelerator program in the United States called Guesswork. And um, I joined IBM Watson this January in order to help them um, build their tech ecosystem around Watson, their technology platform. And on the other hand, to um, help our clients and, and partners to develop cognitive products and solutions um, into their current product line or building new products depending on where they are and what they want to do. Okay. And Ed, you want to share a little bit about your background and, and what led you to, to work on Rainfur? Yeah. So, um, you know, I studied maths at university and then 10 years ago I got into AI and machine learning, studying that in my master's up at Edinburgh. I then worked uh, in a hedge fund for a couple of years and started my PhD after that because I really wanted to be in machine learning and AI. Um, at the end of my PhD, things were really, it was a big advances coming along in AI and machine learning, especially, um, I thought the most exciting thing was machine learning by the NLP. And we understand NLP is language processing, machines understand human language. Um, and we understand is a business that tries to make it much easier for the companies to communicate with their customers. You know, so companies traditionally try and prevent communication with their customers because it's so expensive. But I think AI can make it, um, I think it really differentiates that, that, that experience you have with any service or product. And that's what we're building. Excellent. Well, well, we'll touch a little bit later on the differences between what both of you are doing, but also a little bit more in depth about how companies can interact with, with both your companies. But first, let's, um, let's work through a little bit of definitions just to help the audience understand what it is that AI is uh, a little bit better. First of all, let's start off with a very um, simple question. What is the difference between artificial intelligence and machine learning? You want to go first? So I feel very apprehensive about the artificial intelligence term. So um, I actually, so, so when I first started studying machine learning, no one would call it artificial intelligence. And that was because these systems were, couldn't do anything that you would really think was very intelligent. And there was just, it was, it was kind of the, the, the term had been, um, because basically what's happened with AI is there's been periods of AI hype and then, you know, they call them like AI winters. Um, and we were definitely in a winter when I started, an AI winter when I started machine learning and people called it machine learning. So it was algorithms that got better at doing some task in proportion to the amount of data they were given. Um, people are using the term artificial intelligence now and, uh, you know, I'm okay with that. I do actually believe that 
um, machines are doing something that's intelligent. In our day-to-day work at reinfer, we often have to use the term, oh, a human did that. And I think if you, you know, if you have to dis- if you have to make that distinction that a human has done something, then it's almost implicit that they're doing something intelligent. You know, otherwise we'd just be assumed given given the task, right? I think so. I, so I do think that even though we're still in the domain of very na- narrow uh, intelligence, narrow artificial intelligence, they're still doing intelligent things. So yeah, I'm, a, I'm, I'm. I feel apprehensive because my history, but it is actually AI. Now you mentioned a term narrow. Um, Christoph, maybe maybe we can talk a little bit about the difference between like narrow based AI, you know, very functional uh, AI versus kind of maybe the more broad general AI, which is I guess what most people think when they think of AI, and kind of what what the status of I mean, you got you guys at IBM probably have access to some of the most cutting edge uh, of this, and and maybe you can just give us a, a context between the two. So I would go. One step back, because when we think about AI, it was usually coined, or the term was coined in the mid-50s by John McCarthy when he, um, to um, describe the science engineering of making machines intelligent. And um, that's also what's, what's changed, I would say, when we are now trying to simulate human thoughts by creating intelligent machines so that they are acting like us. Um, we're trying to make um, humans that are uh, or trying to make machines that are like humans or then improve humans, um, intellect, intellectual. Um, when you think about um, narrow AI or, or, or general AI, narrow AI is something that we, that we kind of have because it's very vertical focused, it's very niche focused on, speci- you know, on challenge, on um, mastering specific challenges, whether it's a game, um, whether it's a specific task, whether it's a specific um, um, activity. General AI is something that we would, that I would consider, um, you know, kind of human-like intelligence. So it's a very broad um, combination of um, intellectual intelligence, but also emotional intelligence. And that's a combination where we go um, into very, can go into very deep discussions also about um, um, consciousness and self-awareness, these kind of things. Um, personally, I would call it um, machine intelligence because that describes um, Intelligent computers that process data for pattern recognition, um, dis, uh, discern um, context, make interferences, reasons and learns. And that's, that's how I would call it. Yeah. Okay. That, that makes sense. And to some extent, you've, you've answered this next question, but maybe you can just help also the audience kind of think through this as well. Is, is like, what is the current state, therefore, mm-hmm. machine intelligence, or if you want to use the more broad term AI, what is the current state of that? And what do you think will happen over the next five years in this in this industry? Um, so the current state, I would say that we started in the past decades. Um, companies have been started that are making use of AI already. When you think about Google, that recommends you know the best links for you based on your user behavior. When we have recommendations um, of um, on, on Amazon, um, when we have you know. Um, the, the news and topics that is shown up in Facebook or other social networks. So um, also within IBM itself, I know disease diagnosis is something that's that's already common um, um, in various institutions. So we already are using, uh, our humanity is using products that make, that are enabled by AI quite a lot these days. Um, but what is changing at the moment is that um, these technologies come kind of up to the application layer, which means um, we don't need to have 
a data scientist or an expert in statistical algorithms anymore in order to make use of these technologies. And I always um, use the analogy with um, hosting um, as a service. Um, Ten years ago, um, you needed to have an IT expert or specialist who wanted to um, uh, or needed to set up um, an online application and to make the online program run. It takes one to three days. Um, until one, two years ago, we had the same in, in with, with, mach- with com- um, programs and, and products using machine learning techniques. Nowadays, um, if you can, if you learn on some online courses in one week coding, you can get an application up and running and through an API from various providers like Watson, for example, you can just implement a, a machine learning or AI technique and make your applications intelligent. Yeah, but are you saying that it's as simple as like building a Squarespace website where you're like, okay, fine, I'm gonna drag and drop this, uh, you know, this block that does some attribute and then out comes this. I wouldn't say it's as simple as drag and drop. I would say it's from a technical perspective as simple as implementing a Twitter or any other kind of API into your application. Um, but it requires a specific thought process around design thinking about um, getting to know what the process looks like step by step when I um, bring this technology in front of my customers or implement it into my product. And then also where, um, what can I really do with this type of technology? So where's the real value add that this technology can deliver to my customers in my business or through my business or in my product? Mm. And, and in terms of, you know, you, you obviously have a background uh, in mass, as you mentioned earlier, and you've been doing some of the really deep research for, for your company. What do you reckon the future is going to look like then? So, I, I mean, going back to the question you asked previously, and I think you said this key word to me, which is functional. So I would, I would summarize current machine learning AI algorithms as essentially functional. So they map one type of data to another type. So a picture to a list of the objects in that picture, or some audio to a transcription of that audio. It's kind of a stat, it's a function that mapped one thing to another. What it doesn't do is reasoning or kind of logical processing. So uh, I could give you a puzzle right now that you'd never seen before, and you'd and you'd be able to you'd be able to try and solve it. And that's because you can ha- you can build a model of something and and solve that process. And that's what doesn't exist at all, really, in in AI or machine learning outside of the research lab, outside of tiny little toy problems. And that's what I think is the next step for us. So I think, you know, Facebook and Google are doing a lot of research on essentially algorithms that could maybe read a lot of information and then solve a comprehension task like you were asked at school you know so um, sally went to the gym at the gym she met you know tom those kind of and then they ask questions that require you to bring all of that information together that's the next stage and i think that's that's a big step up in terms of what's possible now Hmm. yeah that's very it's very good to know that that's where we are but it's also a bit sort of disappointing in a way and i think that this is why you're hesitant about using that term ai because I think everybody has this sort of uh, science fiction hope that we're f- far further along than we really are. Yeah, they do, and I and I think it's uh, we yeah, and I think it's that's misplaced that understanding of where we are and, and how much more we've got to do. I mean, yeah, what, what what we had right? I mean, already in the, um, um, one of uh, one one VC in the Netherlands. Um, told me that already, or pointed me in the direction that we had in the mid-1960s, we already had an image recognition program, right, um, that could calculate if the object is moving to the left or to the right. Mm. Um, it just took an hour to calculate the next step. So the application was not usable. It was not usable for us as humans because it took too much time. 
And this is something that also has changed in the last couple of years where, let's say, the processing power, you know, the GPUs have been, you know, have been out there too in order to process, you know, graphical images uh, or graphical uh, input. On the other hand, also the connection of devices and the internet makes it possible to connect lots, lots amount of data and real-time data. Um, so that's something that um, has changed, I would say, over the past, the past couple of years that all these different layers of what is that makes it necessary to really start developing a general AI, for example, um, in, the, in, the, in the still mid to the long-term future. Yeah, but it sounds to me like there's quite a bit of a monopoly forming, though, around certain companies that have access to that technology. So you look at Amazon with Alexa product Siri, and mind you, they're not being used for the kinds of application that Reem for and what you're referring to. But you see how much money is being spent by the big names like IBM, Facebook, Amazon, Google, and you really ask the question, how is it that startups are going to be able to play in this space where like so much technology is required so early and you build on with huge amounts of R&D? Is there any room for startups in this space? I mean, what we, what, what we see is that um, technologies that are, we, for example, bring out are becoming commoditized after 24 to 36 months, right? Because there are startups that are coming up with, um, with better approaches, with different approaches in order to solve specific problems. Um, so there is definitely a game in there because it takes a lot at the beginning to develop something further and it's a lot of data, a lot of processing power, but computers, you know, get better in processing um, and specific data. We will have new CPUs. Um, we will have, um, pre-trained systems. We have, we will have in the mid to long term future, um, systems that can reinforce themselves when they learn stuff, right? Like humans do. Um, and that will decrease the amount of data, for example, that you will need in the future to learn something. Um, and that's where I think startups um, will have always a foot in the ground to, to play a role in there. Um, on another note, what is also what I always see is that companies that pick specific a specific process um, and kind of put functional AI to, to it and, and solve it and make it better, this usually can then be took, taken from one industry into another industry, and then they can actually grow a kind of quite a. They could grow a quite a big company out there. So there's definitely room for it. Ed? So I mean, obviously these large companies have loads of resources, um, and but within those companies there are hundreds of teams, right? So you, when you say oh, the output of Google, actually there are teams in there which are ten people that are making a specific product that has quite a lot of value. Um, ultimately, all the, you know, the only thing is these companies have people and they do have resources, but computational resources are cheaper than they've ever been. And if you consider the cost of building something now versus building something 20 years ago, whether in IT you know, or, or just traditional industry, it's orders of magnitude less. I mean, so in some sense, the, the playing field has never been opener, more open, right, because of the resources like AWS and other other cloud providers. <laughs> so um, I, I think, you know, the other thing is that these these big guys, they release these platforms which are quite often very generic, right? Um, and I don't actually totally agree that it's only a matter of plugging in these platforms. If you want a machine learning system to work well, it has to be currently well designed to the specific problem that you're trying to solve. And I think that's the that's the opportunity that startups have. Fair enough. And which industries are leading this? Like which industries are leading this need for 
Um, I'm going to use this sort of ambiguous term AI, but which, which industries are leading that process? I think that's right definitely now? a question for you, given your, <laughs> the, the flow in your C, right? Um, I mean, any kind of industry where there are a lot of inefficiencies or, or challenges or regulations around um, are the top ones. And therefore, anything in medical, um, you know, in the medical industries, there's also big needs, big challenges to solve uh, are leading this. Also, then now moving into healthcare with a lot amount of data. Um, the finance industry is also um, very um, um, pushing on that. And I also always tends to point towards the commercialization because there's always a difference between the science and the commercialization of specific solutions. And the finance sector has found, I mean, you worked in hedge fund, right? So the finance sector has found how to commercialize these kind of technologies. Um, the, the, the medical sector is currently very, very deep into the science part of it on the, anal and on the analysis of, for example, kind of diagnosis reports, etc. Um, and the commercialization will follow. Um, on the other hand, what we will see is um, big, big consumer-focused industries like retail and e-commerce, um, where there's lots of personalizations um, um, coming up. And that's also what AI, whether it's functional or general or whatever in the future, um, will be very handy because what it allows is um, real-time personalization on scale. And that comes in for everything that's, you know, handy in, in the consumer-facing business. And that's also what Reinfer does, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so that's, um, that's, that's the third big one. And the fourth one is obviously everything around IoT. Um, but that's, I would say, at the moment, less, let's say, natural language processing um, powered and less computer vision powered, still very, um, very focused on, on pattern recognition, pattern matching through machine learning. Um, but this will come in the future um, with all the sensors and all the information that that's, is available out there. Yeah. I mean, you said something right now that was uh, perhaps worth jumping into a little bit deeper, which is real-time personalization mm -hmm. and using AI to, to drive that. What other ways do you see AI techniques impacting the way that we interact with products and services? Uh, there are a lot. Um, it's, it's, I always tend to, to describe it also in two ways. One is the business impact that you have from a business perspective. How does it change the way businesses will, will run, be run in the future? And the other part is how users will interact with the service. And we will have a lot of, um, instead of graphical user interface, we will have lots of um, language user interface, LOEs, um, in the future. Um, which will change the way how we interact. You mentioned Alexa before, right? Which yeah. is just, it's a plain user interface. There yeah. is no app required. There is no personalization per se required for this user access point. Um, so there's a lot of, of applications or services that can be powered through this user, in this, this language user interface. And that will so change a lot. Be something like, I mean, there's already a syntax that's developing, right? Like you look at it in chatbots, you see like at GIF, you know, Submit yeah, something, yeah, right? See, yeah. Then there's at like more intelligence would be of yeah. course at um, there's a company which I'm good, I'm hesitating to say their name because I, I just saw their pitch recently in stealth, but at fill in the blank and then submit kind of the query that you want the bot to return back some financial information or some property information. And we're going to start developing a sort of human verbal syntax. Is that kind of what we have to train ourselves to do? Maybe. I mean, I, I would say that's quite disappointing uh, user experience. Like uh, Siri at, oh, hey, yeah, Alexa. Why can't you just say exactly what you want, right? That's how it should be, if you ask me. Uh, every time you use a new service, you'd have to learn their specific at syntax. I think that's not the right user experience. And it's quite a big barrier for like, you know, that kind of 
grammar structured grammar approaches for like power users or people you know you know if you're a photoshop person and you know every shortcut but it's not for consumer applications if you ask right. me so what so what will that mean if we sort of jump into the realm of science fiction for a second what would the user interface for ai look like keeping in mind that you know in the next five years that the the self-aware ai is likely to not be available to the point where it knows that you're talking to it versus some other person to me, I think the future is very much one of bringing together algorithms and editorials. So you have people in the business def defining certain kind of content pieces and then algorithms distributing and giving that content to the person that's most interested in it. So um, I'm coming home, I want to have dinner. I'm thinking about what kind of dinner I want and I can have a conversation with maybe the supermarket about what that meal would be, right? And they can, they know something about my preferences. They have stuff that they want to, you know, promote. Um, I can have that conversation and I can go and buy it. So it's a mixture of design and curated, human curated content with algorithms delivering it and, and giving it to you based on what you've expressed as your, mm. your intent is at that moment and all, all in the past. You know? mm. So you can have a much better than just trying to build a profile from someone from some cookies. Mm. Um, you actually have kind of true personalization and tailoring of your product to each, mm. each customer. I mean, I mean it's, is it, is it um, a bit of a stretch the way that <laughs> things are playing out right now where um, people are expecting conversational AIs to be the future because I mean, I personally I find them really annoying. Like I've yeah. been yeah. I've been using the Quartz app, and I feel like there's a reason why the newspaper has a visual experience of blocks like a bento box. What because your eyes allow you to sort of select and gravitate towards the stories that you're interested in, yeah. and a conversational uh, AI forces you into a serial consumption pattern. I just don't believe that that's exactly kind of the future, but maybe maybe you have a different take on that. So part of the reason the design pattern is so serial is because the technology is quite weak. So if you can't understand language well, the best way to build that kind of experience is to be very strict and say these are the steps we're going through. And I totally agree that it's not the right UX. But there are parts of our life where we choose to have a conversation with a customer service agent. And many of those are extremely procedural. Um, and I think that the set of things that we want to have a conversation on will just grow and grow and grow. Um, even when I go into a supermarket, you know, I do ask questions or sometimes of the, if I thought they had more knowledge, I'd ask the, the customer service representative more questions. Um, I think that I was surprised that Facebook pushed out all of those bots at announcements so soon, given the poor quality of all of those apps. Um, I think it was kind of, you know, people staking their claim to some territory before they actually had the right product in place. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, one thing I want to add is we need to differentiate between the, the active in interaction with these kind of bots and with these kind of assistants and the other part that we, what you mentioned right now but the other part is the whole passive part behind it which means if an, an assistant or if an, a machine is smart and intelligent why does it actually have to bother me why can't it do stuff on my own because i agree with you it's it's it really annoys me as well when you know it's funny for a week to say lights go on lights go off lights 50 percent or 80 percent go off but it's it actually it's when if it's intelligent it should know that what i want and what i like and just do it instead of bothering me all the time and that's also what we have to expect in the in the in the already near to mid future because what smartphones did is actually locked us into new user behavior 
away from real assistants who know what we wanted, like the butcher around the corner who knows exactly what I, what I like, what I dislike. He doesn't need to ask me. I don't need to have a conversation with him about this anymore. And that's what we will see in the mid-future already, is that systems will interact with us without actually having a conversation or real interaction with us by just doing what we want to do. And that's, I think, when we have from a user experience, finally reach the next level to have then, you know, to make real use of these kind of um, systems. Hmm. Cool. Well, one of the things that I, I did before uh, interviewing you guys today was ask several of our friends out there what questions they had for you guys. And so I wanted to sort of throw some of them out there. Um, from our team, we had Jamal McMurrin ask, uh, what is the single biggest threat to the advancement of AI in the next 50 years? To the advancement of AI. Yeah. What's the biggest threat? And actually, right. I'm not going to answer the question, but I did. I did hear this one anecdote about like you know when men invented or what you know when humanity invented um, uh, fire, they found out ways of not burning themselves to death. Right. Mm. So clearly, there is some element in humanity that prevents us from like taking something too far, but maybe in, it doesn't have to be down the path of destructive AI, but just in, what is the biggest threat to the advancement of AI in the next 50 years? I guess if there's maybe some unanticipated issue, you know, people are saying Moore's law is going to end, um, but I don't believe that's such a problem because we'll just go to massively parallel architectures, but there might be some kind of fundamental there might be something that just stops computers being able to advance. I think, you know, the advancement in knowledge of AI is actually much slower than the advancement in chips. And, and a, lot of the, a lot of the progress has been made is purely down to chips being much better. So if chips stop getting better, then I think that could, that could really result in a slowdown. I would say people in general, humans in general, right? If um, we have the ability to start something, to stop something, uh, to start a development, to stop a development. And no matter if machines will be able in the future to reproduce and create themselves, um, it doesn't mean that we are not advancing ourselves, right? Right now, we're always pushing our, our focus on making machines more intelligent, making machines better. But what happens if we will become cyborgs, right? When we become better, um, why... Who's, who who's say why can't we get better than machines at all by integrating the best out of the machine the, the world of machines intelligent machines and combining them with you know human emotions and human thought processes and whatever um, and even human capabilities physical capabilities right so maybe we we shift in a completely different direction in the next 10 15 years um, as we did for example 10 15 years already so every time we advance ourselves in the in the field of ai we change our perspective on it. same with singularity and all these questions coming around mm. actually you said something interesting about people being a blocker um i uh, i heard that one of the challenges that um the driverless cars have is as soon as people know that it's a driverless car they mess with it like they just want to see how it reacts and so maybe you know you see all these photos uh, or these videos on on the web of like you know, those robots that are part of the Google team now, but like the big cat and all those where the guys are beating them up and throwing right, them yeah. down. You know, you can just see, see these drones walking on the street kind of some semi-autonomously just having, you know, people just like teasing them. Or yeah, whatever. so maybe there would be a Luddite kind of resurgence of like the Luddite movement. Or, I also think maybe, you know, research being purely concentrated within, within these large companies that could probably decelerate um, advancements in AI because... 
you know, at the moment, um, all the big companies are very good about publicly releasing their research, but maybe that could stop because of the dynamics of that um, that market, and and I think that would be quite damaging. Philip uh, Philip Marin asks, what are the breakthrough milestones? we can expect to be beaten in the next few years in any of infrastructure, algorithms, software, data sets, application level, and which ones are the really hard ones we should strive towards medium term? Okay, so I would say next five years is NLP. So NLP is... Um, that? So NLP is natural language processing, so it's machines being able to understand human language and perform some of the tasks that humans can when we read documents or converse with people. Um, there's been not as much advances in NLP versus vision and audio. Um, there's huge concentration of resources on it now because it is probably the most valuable problem um, it, that, that might be cracked in the next five years or have significant progress. To me, the longer scale is agents that can solve problems that you don't have many attempts to have a go at right so all the all the deep mind problems they're computer games because with a computer game you can play the game millions of times but there's loads of situations in in the real world where you never encountered that scenario before if you can imagine um like an x.ai and amy you know thing that helps you schedule your calendar Many events in a calendar are totally unencountered before, and you have to be making a reasoning process about, oh, can I reschedule that appointment because he's a really he's a really important guy. I don't want to mess him around, so I'd actually remove those other two meetings. You know, the, these are things that you cannot do again and again. You have to have a reasoning process. So, mm. so algorithms that have a model of the world and can reason with them is the next big thing. Mm. I would I would add the whole part um, next to uh, intellectual intelligence of emotional intelligence. So how to understand how people react, why people react the way, um, based on emotions, on tone, on personalities, these kind of things. Um, because for machines, it's pretty simple to analyze um, kind of data that's available and that's out there. But to analyze a person's um, um, current state of being or something when there's during an interaction that's that's still quite a challenge for a machine and that comes back to, to what you as well said is how to you know is this person important or is this person in in a, in a specific state where, where he needs more attention different attention these kind of things so it's the on the one hand i think it's it's i often asking the question i often ask the question why do people try to imitate humans um, and human behavior all the time with machines. On the other hand, it's absolutely necessary in order to, you know, assist us best and in order to interact with us. Because without knowing it, um, machines will always be seen as the dump, um, you know, kind of systems and, and tools out there that people want to mess around with. Right. Mm. Moving into sort of the deeper, the deeper implications of having these <coughs> decisions being made. Uh, how do you instill ethics into AI? How you know what what are the what are the issues associated with creating that level of of uh, built-in functionality within an AI algorithm? Mm. Who whose ethics would you choose, and how would the ethics of AI evolve? I mean, and this is from Ping He from uh, LinkedIn. So my point of view is that at the moment every AI kind of reflects the value of its creator, um, and I think this will go as 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 long as. Um, machines will be able to create or reproduce themselves um, because there's always an intent why something has been created and 
this will always be reflected in how this machine will solve or perform a specific task. Um, so that's that's my five cents to, to that. So I think probably the earliest examples of AIs having kind of negative social consequences, given that the mismatch of their kind of, you know, ethical code is those ones in um, automated trading, right? So the flash crash, I don't think any human trader would have forced the flash crash, right? Um, but those agents did because they had a purely monetary reward function. Um, so that's, I think, it's a very interesting thing. And I think reward function dynamics are extremely interesting. So we don't, that's, you know, that's one of the big things in Nick Bostrom's book, you know, on artificial superintelligence and the risks of that. Um, that if we do have artificial general intelligence, the, the value function that we give that, the, you know, the, the set of values we give that agent in the first place is extremely important. It has massively, you know, hard to predict, um, behavioral consequences. So it's probably one of the biggest, most important things in the long-term development of artificial intelligence. Mm. And I think one of the things that's going to come out from any of these uh, of these interactions with AI and with any conclusions that are drawn from any interactions is that there's a, a little bit of a trickle, which then becomes a, a waterfall of intellectual property being created. Uh, Dr. Joe Iden starts that question around intellectual property ownership. If you're interacting with AI and AI is making ethical decisions, perhaps, or making different kinds of curatorial decisions and then coming up with what could be called new works, mm. who owns mm. that? Yeah. And especially, for example, if, if uh, IBM Watson is powering the app that is, you know, doing the data collecting and then maybe the sort of front facing elements of it, who owns that intellectual property? Is it just, or does the AI start having a little piggy bank? Well, I think in, if you took it in the human context, um, you know, you, an employee with a lot of experience is worth more than an employee with less experience. And we don't have any problem with that, right? So you get better at your job the more experience you've had dealing with a specific set of clients. And you don't uh, get annoyed that, you know, um, someone on this in this company that you've, you're paying for this contract is becoming better at their job. So there's derived knowledge and then there's knowledge to do specifically with that company. You just need the right, I think, legal contracts in place so that you're not exploiting specific pieces of information that are valuable to that company. The IP that you create is, is always, I mean, we, we need to differentiate between, um, let's say, um, where your company's data from a user perspective is um, adding to a central kind of knowledge graph or if this is something that you where you create your own artificial intelligence. That's, I think, two different, two different th um, two things we need to separate here. Um, and then, of course, when you, impl when you put your data into and uh, that, you know, adds to a central knowledge graph, then, of course, the IP that's created is, you know, is part of, of what's the central, who owns the, the it's, is part or belongs to the to the company or to the person who owns this or who owns the central knowledge graph. Um, so 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 that's that's on one thing. So that's that's let's say a, a private contract that, that you need to 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 define. On the other hand, um, you know around IP, we we also need to to think about um, how 
how when we have customer interactions, AI also learns, but also human learn, right? So a customer service rep is also getting better by the problems that he's solving um, with a customer. This also belongs then to the company. So that's the same what what happens when you interact with a computer and with a machine. Yeah, but the difference example, is the scalability, right? The, inter- so you can the, interaction, the interaction of that customer service agent mm-hmm. is something that they bring. They bring emotional intelligence to mm-hmm. that equation. It's their own emo- emotional intelligence. Yeah. They're interacting with that customer. They're getting better at interacting with that customer in terms of what information they feed, the relevance of that information, how it's based upon products that are, you know, being manufactured. But the emotional intelligence required to make that transaction inherently positive, which we'll talk about in a bit with, with, uh, Rainfer. One of the things that is clear is that there's an emotional component to this equation that, that artificial intelligence might not be able to get there. Abby, Abby Poop, um, from, um, uh, multiple asks how emotionally intelligent could AI become, and it fundamentally is this this very question: How could it? It can become very emotional. If you take if you take Watson for example, it can understand emotions, tones, personalities, etc., which can create a kind of an emotional intelligence already. So it takes this into consideration while just analyzing pure data or pure information, and then reacts differently to specific to specific um, characters, uh, people out there, etc. So that's that's very important. Um, I wouldn't say that there's a difference between between a machine or a human that interacts with you and learns about something. Um, the machine has also been trained, right? My emotions have been trained over the past 30 years um, to interact in this specific occasion with you or with anybody else, the same belongs to a machine. The only difference is the scalability, right? I can basically pluck this out and I can basically pluck this out and, you know, multiply this and scale this, which I can't do with a person, which means there are different economics behind it, which we have to find a solution from it. But this is a very, let's say, a societal and an economic question. Yeah. I think I, I personally think we're some way off machines really understanding emotion well. Um, it requires a huge kind of understanding about the drivers for the lived experience of a human. Um, I think we can have simple kind of mappings of, of, of someone being happy or sad or, or this kind of emotion, but mm-hmm. not really the true kind of. We have a very all humans have a very similar lived experience, and that makes us extremely sympathetic to the yeah. emotional state of anyone that we're interacting with. Yeah, um, and, and maybe maybe um, this is a good segue for you to tell us a little bit more about Reinfer because you know we were having a chat and you showed me some of the stuff that you guys are working on, and it isn't about it isn't about sort of training a bot to be able to be emotionally intelligent, but rather trying to discern from people's interactions what their emotional state is. And then reporting that back. Do you, do you want to maybe share a little bit more in depth what, what you guys are trying to, to break through? Yeah. So companies talk to their customers at loads of different points, right? So there's emails, there's chats. A lot of companies do like NPS surveys with follow-on open questions. And all of that data is essentially unanalyzed in terms of its content, right? So there's no current analysis or understanding of what the content of those interactions are and they're incredibly informative people tell you exactly what makes them feel uh, a deep sense of attachment and happiness with your product or service or things that great them and so it's a really valuable source of information 
And then the second stage is, well, obviously we need to interact with, uh, you know, the customers in those channels um, in, in a scalable and efficient way. We're not so much focused on truly understanding the emotional state of an individual, but really just what they mean when they say something and there is an emotion attached to those, to those statements. Um, we look at it at a relatively high level. It's more about giving people what they want. Um, uh, and making that scale like software, essentially. So, yeah. Do you want to give an example of, of how maybe a customer could, could deploy this? Yeah, so customers already interact with their, um, their customers, maybe using Zendesk or some other kind of um, platform or just emails. And then we plug into uh, those systems using an API and all of, those, all of those communications are pushed to us, our platform. Our AI algorithms read that uh, information and allow the customer to understand what their customers are saying. So our client understand what their customers are saying. So our clients are always B2C businesses. Uh, typically in those interactions, there's a huge amount of repeat transactional requests that clog up everyone's time. And we can automate those interactions and give a better UX to everyone. And essentially, if you, re- if you can do those transactional things better, then you stop trying to prevent people from reaching out to customer service and customer service can become a better and better experience for everyone involved. Right. And, and this is done by being able to discern which, which kind of actions to take. Yeah, so essentially we have algorithms that understand essentially the, the atomic data element for us is a sentence. So what does a sentence mean? Basically all consume, business to consumer interaction in our eyes is a collection of sentences, a sequence of sentences, a narrative of sentences. If we, we, we build algorithms that better understand sentences and make it very easy for our clients to process that data essentially. So they can recognize flaws with their product, particular experiences that are causing problems, and also to react to certain kind of transactional CS requests. Mm, excellent. Christoph, maybe um, you can walk us through in a little bit more detail sort of the, the package of IBM Watson, sort of unpack it for us, because it, it does, the name is awesome, by the way. You know, the name sounds so cool, but at the same time, it's so, it's, it's, maybe it's a bit comprehensive, right? Like it has so many bits. Maybe you can work, like, if I were a developer and I want to do something, what would it entail? So basically what you can do with Watson is that um, you can access through REST APIs, you can access various services um, that are helping you to analyze specific data f- um, to um, get out sp- or to retrieve specific um, information um, out of it. This can be whether it's in text form, textual form, um, this can be in, in, in an audio form by, you know, spoken words or kind of listening to music, these kind of things. This can be in, in, in images or video form, whatever. Um, the, 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 the interesting part of Watson is that, um, it allows you to build your own AI, which means, I know we talked about the term, right? But it means that you can, um, for example, take a computer vision API that we offer. It has trainable models, which means you can train it. Um, specifically on in e-commerce to um, recognize specific shirts or t-shirts or something um, or um, when you use it in a drone you can um, create your own um, intelligence to recognize um, specific appliances on buildings for maintenance or something like that um, and with that that information you create your own AI because nobody else has that although you build it with IBM it's your own instance and you can um, and you are the, the owner of this IP getting back to the question you had earlier, right? Um, 
So, so that's what you can do with it. And the kind of the applications that you can build with it um, is quite broad because um, you can build your own conversational in interfaces similar to Reinfer, what they do, mm. by using two um, um, APIs of, of, of Watson. Um, you can um, use it to do real-time translation services um, from speech to speech. Um, you can use it to... Um, analyze kind of in social media or any kind of other market information to build, to build market intelligence. Um, you can use it to build service agents, right? So how so to multiply an expert that helps you to solve a specific problem um, somewhere out in the field. Um, or another example would be to um, have an intelligent um, um, kind of assistant with you, and on a, on the construction site where it's usually noisy, you're wearing gloves, you can't you can't input the information, everything and anything like that. So you use the speech to text input kind of tools to to put your information into the system to be to keep up with your project management tool. Um, you know, it can filter out the noises. You know, you can take pictures that shows the the, the stages of the construction, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So. In, 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 in a nutshell, it helps you to build very smart assistants that help you in, in any kind of um, um, way when you're interacting, whether with your customer or in your business. And that's also what we will see in the future. Um, we will see a lot of these systems helping anyone from a sales rep or a customer service agent up to managers to make smarter decisions, um, to give them you know broader information. Um, for businesses, it will become very valuable because these days you have your individual scope. Um, sometimes you have your the scope of your unit within your company, but you can't have the scope of the whole business, right? So if you have a thousand employees, how can you how can you match your goals and your daily activities with the company's activities? Mm -hmm. A smart assistant that is, that assists a manager and the top level management, but also the the people on the ground. It can help you to, to put everything into perspective and give anyone the best, you know, um, and advice what to do next and how to serve a customer or to solve a specific problem. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Well, thanks, guys, for joining us. Uh, it's been very insightful to, to walk through both of what your companies do, but also to look, explore some of the questions that the audience has around AI and sort of clarifying where things are. Um, just for those that want to reach out to you, what's the best way to get in touch with you, Ed? Founders at reinfer.io. Excellent. Christoph? Just Christoph at nl.ibm.com or just on Twitter, LinkedIn, whatever you prefer. Excellent. Just mention Carlos. Nice. <laughs> thanks. All right, guys. Well, until next time, and thanks for joining. Bye. Bye. <laughs>